Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss Monday Thursday, which this year falls on April 1st. We do have one content notification for this episode. We talk about ableist and ageist communion practices when we discuss our deep dive of communion. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our deep dive today, we are diving into one of my favorite topics, which is communion. So Monday Thursday is frequently celebrated as the institution of communion, the time when Jesus first institutes the Last Supper, as it is also called, or Eucharist. And so we thought, what better time than now to talk about all of the complexities that the church has created around communion. Yes, and we should be clear that we're approaching this from a Lutheran context, but we will address several ways that other religious traditions approach communion. Uh, And we are most knowledgeable about Lutherans, but if anyone would like to correct us on what we say about other people, uh, by all means. Yes. And when we say Lutherans, we don't just mean the ELCA, because Lutheran theology is not the property of the ELCA, and I have some thoughts that go against the ELCA about communion, but are very deeply Lutheran. So, And goodness knows, I've been well-educated about other Lutheran denominations as well. So, <laughs> That's also true. So when we talk about communion frequently, the there are kind of three different approaches that different traditions take to communion. One is transubstantiation, which is um, probably the Catholic Church is the the Roman Catholic Church is the most well known for that, where it is believed that something actually happens to, in their case, the wafer and the wine to make it Jesus actual body and blood. And therefore, after the elements are blessed, you treat them as though that is actually Jesus' body and blood, to the point that if you spill wine on the carpet, you cut out that piece of carpet. Yes, and this is a lot of Orthodox churches, I think, also have a similar thing and have like all of these precautions to care for the elements for communion. That's also, if you've ever seen a candle, like an eternal flame, Ironically, not actually supposed to be an eternal flame, but it comes from the Catholic Church having a candle there to mark when there is host the when the host is present. So, the host being the consecrated elements of for communion. Sure. So, it's it's funny though because then a bunch of Protestant churches like have these eternal flames and to remind us that God is always with us when in fact we don't take that approach to communion. Yep. (laughs) Another approach to communion is that of remembrance. So because I currently serve in a Methodist context, that's one of the contexts I have, but it's the idea that we're remembering something that happened and it was cool and Jesus is great and it's like, it is special, but it is not something where Jesus is uniquely and particularly present. But you're still following the direction, do this for the remembrance of me. Yes. Yep. So those are kind of two ends of the spectrum on 
how pe- how different denominations and people can understand communion. And like good Lutherans, we oh. choose <laughs> good Lutherans, good non-binary people, good queer people, like so many of us. We, we live in the tension. Yes, we live in the tension and we choose a third way. So a lot of Lutheran tradition is connected to the idea of consubstantiation. So it is the idea that the elements, bread and wine usually, sometimes juice, retain their properties. So they are always going to be bread and they are always going to be wine. And when we, at the institution, the words of institution, the institution of communion in a worship service, they also, then Jesus is present, as they say, in, with, and under the elements. So it is not that the elements themselves change physical property, but it is that Jesus is particularly and uniquely present in communion. Yes, Jesus is really and truly there, and it's not just that we're thinking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So those those are kind of different ways of understanding it. We certainly have our theological proclivities, but <laughs> we would love to hear kind of how you think about communion. I know I have a friend who really only wants to have communion on Monday, Thursday. And that's all. And I'm a communion junkie and I would have it every day if I could. So there's a whole, a whole spectrum of spectrum or scatter plot of how we approach communion. I would be especially interested in hearing about other Christian traditions that sort of take that third way. There is another option route. I know a lot of religious traditions that follow the remembrance model. I am familiar with the Catholic Church's approach. Uh, but as far as I know, Lutherans are kind of on their own for doing the, no, we're going to pick a, another way. Uh, and uh, if there are other people that probably take a slightly different third way uh, or a slightly different let's ignore the binary and try something else kind of way, uh, I would be interested in hearing about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But many Christian traditions celebrate communion in different ways and with different kinds of rules. For example, one way that we often talk about how a particular congregation or a particular denomination celebrates communion is we will say that they practice open table or they practice a closed table. That has to do with who is invited and welcome to take communion. A open table, uh, any any believing Christian, anybody who who wants to receive, anybody who... It's just an anybody. Yeah. Well, anybody who wants it. Like, I don't yeah. think anybody's yeah. going to force communion on you. No, that's, kind of, that's, that's not good hospitality. That's true. But, like, you don't <laughs> have to be a quote-unquote believing Christian. Like, it is. Right, no. If you well, want it, you get it. Yes, you want it, you get it. I tend to use the phrase believing Christian because I have also been present when people who weren't Christian took communion because they thought they were supposed to, and then they realized that they were actually like practicing another religion by doing so. Not everybody gets that communion, like taking communion is an active statement of faith. That's what mm-hmm. you're doing by taking it. And I have had some friends that got pretty pissed off when they realized that what they had just done, uh, because it... Christians don't usually explain all of that stuff every time before they practice communion because, you know, it's just another Sunday for us. Mm -hmm. So open table is people are welcome, but they don't have to. And also we should probably do a better job of explaining what it is you're signing up for if you're not familiar with it. Yes. 
versus a closed table, which is the group of people invited to receive is very specific. Uh, maybe you have to be a member of that denomination to receive. Maybe you have to be a member of that or a handful of other denominations. Maybe you have to be a member of that particular congregation. Maybe you have to not only be a member, but you have to be of a certain like status within the congregation, like you have to be a, a member in good standing, or you have to have been confirmed or gone through some education process, that kind of thing. Uh, open versus closed table uh, tells you something about how the, that church practices communion. Uh, and and it has implications for other things, right? When you think about Yes, hospitality in general, mm -hmm. uh, I would say. Um, usually the reasoning that I've been given for closed table has to do with wanting to make sure that everyone receiving communion believes the same things. They're all agreeing on what this means, what it's about, that kind of thing. That's the, the reasoning I've heard behind it. The reasoning behind open table is wanting to make sure that everyone feels welcome. Like, you don't, we're not going to shove it down your throat. That would be rude. But uh, you are welcome if you want it. Mm -hmm. and, so. and I think there's a there's a faithfulness to it also where... And this is, I will show my hand that I am very much a favor, in favor of an open table. This is my shocked face. <laughs> I know. But there's, there's a sense of, right, if you're requiring people believe the right things, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't care which things you believed. And even in the words of institution, as we'll read about in our Corinthians passage, it was for all right? Especially at the cup, Jesus gives it for all. And that matters that, that the way that it was set up so that it's not just like a hierarchical thing of like, you must be baptized and only the baptized can get this thing. You must be this tall in order to ride the communion ride. <laughs> Speaking of which, actually, Another rule that various congregations uh, of both the open and closed table traditions will often put on communion is, is that you have to be a certain age or have completed a certain set of education in order to receive communion. Uh, sometimes that age is like you have to be four and you have to have gone to the afternoon where the pastor explains this is what this tastes like this is what this tastes like it means jesus loves you there you go sometimes it means that you have to be 14 years old and have finished the uh, ninth grade confirmation curriculum and have gone through a public examination uh, where you have to memorize the small catechism uh, the lutherans <laughs> at least are mostly working on uh, paring down some of that stuff that I'm familiar with, at least. Uh, I have a couple of colleagues who have managed to get rid of the public examination part of the confirmation curriculum this year, and they are very proud of it. Gratefully so. Yeah. So technically, you could call that closed table, even if the church calls themselves open table. But very often, they just want to make sure that the people involved uh, receive education and truly understand uh, some of or as much of the various uh, issues that we're talking about now. But I, I don't think education is a bad thing, but I do take issue with limiting to a an older age. I started receiving communion at age 10. Mm -hmm. Mine was second or third. Yes, actually, I think... I think I started receiving when I was about 10 uh, in fourth grade, which I think was a little old. I think I would have been ready to receive at like seven. And the other question for that is, what do you do about people who aren't at what we would think of as a normal mental development stage? 
is there an age where you stop receiving if you start sliding into dementia when you when mm-hmm. you're elderly uh, or for Alzheimer's? Uh, in my practice uh, of visiting those who are in memory care or assisted living, uh, very often there's a stage during the process of dementia and Alzheimer's uh, where you literally can't swallow anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's often a stage before that where they can't follow the process. They don't know what you're doing when you ask them to to receive the wafer and the wine, they aren't connected at all. Uh, And so there does come a point very often uh, with folks in that situation where they just can't receive anymore. It's not that they don't want to, it's that they aren't mentally capable. In my experience, we keep giving communion long after they understand the whole process of transubstantiation versus consubstantiation versus remembrance and all that stuff. Really, my thought is if you know that it's communion and you know that Jesus, it means Jesus loves you, then you receive. That's mm-hmm. all it takes. Yeah. Small children also can know all of that. Mm-hmm. And and we can do education without having it be a gatekeeping thing. Yeah. Small children know it. And small children know what it means to be excluded. And yes. that has a huge impact. I think, I think your point about like folks with Alzheimer's or dementia is a dementia is a good pushback against the you can't have it until this age claim as well because because there are also going to be children in the congregation who have developmental issues that mean maybe they don't complete the confirmation process like most of the kids do Um, and that doesn't mean that they should be kept from the table yep in fact i've I have had this conversation with a number of people who are very big on the, no, you have to wait until ninth grade to receive. And they're not about to hold back a kid because they don't have the developmental ability at that point. So, yeah. And I think that's, that's a piece where our own, like the, the ableism and ageism, even in the church comes out to play really strong in who is allowed at communion and who we think of as like a valid member, a good enough member. Right. Donutism. It's a heresy. Look it up. (laughs) It can be fun. And I think every time somebody's like, well, you have to like really understand what is happening at communion. I'm like, I don't understand what is happening at communion. (laughs) Like, really? Because communion is this thing and it is like, mystical and transcendent and powerful i don't know how jesus does it i don't know how the holy spirit is particular like manifests jesus in a particular way i can do the like i for those wafers i can definitely do the like it is easier to believe that this is jesus than that this is bread thing (laughs) but that does not mean that like i understand the fullness of what communion does in and for also, ninety-nine me. out of a hundred times, if you ask one of those people, "Okay, explain it to me," <laughs> they will make at least one mistake that I can spot. Yep. Uh, and then it turns out that they didn't understand it properly, and yet they've been receiving communion for years. Hmm. Right. And then when you ask kids who are ready to receive communion, they can tell you. They can tell you that it means that Jesus loves them, and there yep. is s- such a gift in. Like, I, I get, and I think there is a gift in, like, marking First Communions. I think sure. that that is valuable and beautiful. And I remember when I was on internship, we did First Communion on Monday, Thursday. And yes. there was one kid who was younger than the congregation's traditional cutoff age. 
but was like so ready to receive communion that like they were led into the communion classes sure. and went through them. And to see on Monday, Thursday in particular, when like all of the adults are like, this is somber. Jesus is going to die. We have to be like penitent when we receive communion. And then you see this kid who dances up and down the aisle with joy at yes. having received communion. And I'm like, yes. I don't need to preach. Like, that, that <laughs> is the sermon okay, for today. I'm done. Congratulations. Everybody go home. <laughs> yep. And I think, yeah. yeah. So I think that is a big piece of when we withhold communion from people, we lose out on its meaning yeah. and its significance. Now, on a purely selfish note, I will point out that I, as a pastor, deeply love the process of blessing people who are not receiving, which very often involves a lot of small children. I love that part of the service. I I wish I got to do that with like everybody every Sunday, whether or not we were having communion. I'm on board for that. Actually, uh, this year, the congregation I'm working with uh, is doing in-person worship uh, with many, many precautions due to COVID. Uh, and we've realized that we're going to still have to do communion in the pews on Easter with the little cups with the attached bread thing, and that's going to be frustrating. We don't want people to come up front to do that because it, it takes a few, it takes some people quite a while to get those little cups open because of the cellophane, and we don't want to embarrass anybody. But we are trying to figure out how we can do a blessing where people can come forward to the front of the church like they used to do for communion, and it will it will bring back that that experience uh, for them, even if it's not quite the same as it used to be. Mm. Uh, and hopefully it can bridge a gap. Yeah. But I love getting to bless people. And if you start communing kids at like 18 months, it, I get to bless fewer people. And that's... Um, you should just move to fun. Slovakia. When I was in Slovakia, the Lutheran church there actually does... Like people come up in tables... At, to the altar and kneel around and then the pastors come by with bread and cup wafers and cup and then they come by and they bless people they do blessings on people's heads and then they do a table blessing and then everybody leaves and the next group comes in so it takes longer awesome. but it is part of lutheran traditions elsewhere in the world cool okay yeah speaking of uh restricting communion this year in particular <laughs> has been a we have thoughts yeah i, have, I know you're surprised but we do i have some major thoughts about communion this year this year as we have moved through our first year of quarantine and hopefully last and dear god um i live in iowa don't even think about that okay how about like this this is the last pandemic of our lifetime like, I realize it's probably not going to be true, but hope is a good thing, Emily. It's true. Come on. All right. I, I'll grant that one. Anyway, so when we all moved to virtual worship, to gathering online for worship, I know our congregation the first week didn't do communion because it was a scramble. It was like Friday the decision was made to stop worshiping in person. And so we just like didn't have time to do all of the things and figure out all of the logistics and that sort of thing. But by the next week... And that's fair. Mm -hmm. it, taking a couple of days to figure things out is not a bad thing. Yep. And then the next week, um, Pastor Alejandro and I changed the scripture and we read the First Corinthians scripture. 
and we preached explicitly about like what communion is and how it is meaningful. And then we celebrated communion as a community and we've been doing that ever since. When it came out in the ELCA circles that like, no, you shouldn't be doing like, let's take this opportunity to fast from communion. And A, fasting is not something that is imposed by external forces on a person. That's not right. how fasting works. Right. Fasting also... That's starvation. Yes, that is starvation. And fasting is supposed to be something that draws us closer to God, that has deeper meaning and connection, that is an intentional spiritual practice. Saying, we don't know what's going on, we haven't figured it out, so we're just going to like not do it, is none of those things. Um, and the reality is... Communion is so much bigger than any yes. of us understand. And people have been worshiping, there are congregations that have been worshiping online since before the pandemic that have been gathering in person and online so that the full community can be present and so that it's more accessible for people. Communion has always been a thing of celebrating and remembering and connecting to a great cloud of witnesses. Um, and so for me, it was an easy step to say, of course, virtual communion counts. We had talked about it, actually, when I was in Utah. Our synod had talked about doing a kind of virtual communion and having people sure. lift up the elements for uh, the weekend that was our synod assembly. So having all of the other congregations, because we had it over the weekend, having them just tune in to the worship service we had played with this and ended up not doing it for reasons that I think probably are related to why the ELCA took the position it took, but it's celebrating communion together. The reason why we say only pastors can celebrate communion is not because pastors are have magic hands or are special, it, particularly in the Lutheran church. It is because we needed it to not be pure chaos. And so if it's not going to be pure chaos, then like we set some people apart who have the responsibility of presiding at communion. And that is that is what is supposed to be how communion works, how presiding at communion, like that's supposed, it's supposed to be about good order. And if we're saying to people that worship and church and who we are as the body of Christ and the community of God is bigger and more expansive than any building, which we've been preaching for millennia, yeah. Then how do we all of a sudden say, but communion is only actually about this one particular thing. You can't just do it from anywhere. Like that, it just does not fit within our larger theology of God's presence, of God's work in the world, of what it means, of our ecclesiology, of our thinking about what it means to be church. Yeah. And there are still issues with the concept of virtual communion. Like, for example, receiving communion in a in-person church worship service restricts communion to only those who can be physically present, which is why we started doing communion visits and taking communion to those who can't be present. Mm -hmm. Virtual communion restricts communion to only those who can be virtually present, which uh, means that the possibility of communion visits also have to be figured out for a slightly different population. So it's not like it's 
the the perfect answer to all of Christianity's problems, mm-hmm. um, although it does solve some problems. But that doesn't mean that it's not an option. Yeah. And that's, I think, some of the pushback that I have heard against communion, virtual communion, has been like, well, what about people who don't have something? And what about people who can't tune in? And like our congregation, the congregation I serve has a significant number of people who don't have internet or don't have fancy phones or computers and they call in and so are part of our worship community. And not everybody, some people don't participate in our worship right now and that's okay. And we send uh, our bulletin to everybody so that they can participate in their own ways at home. Sure. But also like, we're supposed to be connecting communion and the table to the kitchen table, the dining room table, the coffee table, all of the different tables that we eat at. When I was in Utah, I, we were starting a new worshiping community. And so I, somebody had a door and I painted it to make it into our communion table. And on one part, it was very much like, there were kind of two panels, one small, one square one and one rectangular one. And the square one was baptism themed and the rectangular one was communion themed. And it went from the initial, so it was mostly the Ute who were the initial inhabitants of Utah mm-hmm. and the, the food that nourished them in that time moving through. Um, so it was a kind of farm to table history to present. Cool. And it ended up with, like, a food pantry and cans of food. Oh, awesome. And, right, but it's, okay, but I have to ask, because we're Lutheran and it's a door, at what point did someone nail a copy of the 95 Theses to it? That's complicated. We didn't make it to Reformation. So... Okay. I still have the door, though, because cool. I really like the door. I want to make it into my own coffee tables now. Um, but that, right, like, that is what we're supposed to be doing with communion. We're supposed to be connecting it to our tables so that we recognize the holiness and the sacredness of the conversations we have at every meal, at every coffee time. And so then to say, well, what if people don't have that can't buy the things? It's like, well, you don't need to use a wafer and a shot of wine in order to have communion, which brings us into the what is communion? What are the elements of communion question? Traditionally, and in 1 Corinthians, we read that Jesus took a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. Yeah. And there is this really great document that a lot of ecumenical partners, including, including the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, signed on to called the Nairobi Statement. Yes. I call it the Nairobi Statement. If you look up the Nairobi Statement. Yeah, it might be the only Nairobi Statement about communion. Yeah, and we will link to that in our episode for today as well, or in our episode description. But the Nairobi Statement talks about worship being transcultural, so it connects people across cultures, being contextual, so it fits within its context. It is of the people. And worship being countercultural. So it speaks against those things in the culture that cause harm and that yes. oppress. And being cross-cultural. That it connects across different cultures. And 
for communion, the ways we think about what elements we use for communion actually fit really well within this, right? Some of us use homemade bread and wine. Some people have like homemade wine, which is super impressive. Some Homemade bread is also super impressive. Just It's true. It's true. Especially if you don't have a bread machine. I cheat. I have a bread machine. It's true. It is super impressive. Some use juice. Welch's grape juice actually was made by Methodists. It's first made yep. by Methodists for communion. And some people use tortillas, right? I could see rice and sake being communion. It's about right, the ways that we say what it is says something about who we are and who we're connected to. And so having tortillas is a particularly meaningful thing in some cultures. And sure. and so when we celebrate communion with the food of the people, with the things that cause people to celebrate, then it's a way of being contextual. It's a way of getting deeper into that connection with every table that we eat at. Yeah. But we also want to make sure that everyone truly is welcome, and therefore we provide a non-alcoholic option for those who cannot or should not receive alcohol, uh, choose not to receive alcohol, and we provide a gluten-free option for people who have celiacs or uh, various other related issues. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are some places in the world where bread and wine, the way that we Westerners think of it, uh, just aren't easily available, and I have spoken with a lot of people about what various options are uh, good options for communion, and nobody really has a problem with if you're in a place where there's oodles of rice and very little wheat and grapes, uh, you use rice wine and rice bread. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But there are some options that seem like they're a little far out there, and for that, there is, of course, a meme. Of course. And we will link to the meme. The, I want to say one more thing before we get into the meme. The other piece of how we think about the elements of communion, and particularly how I think about the elements of communion, is that I invite people to have a little bit of something to eat and a little bit of something to drink and to have it be something that is nourishing, right? When we think about the bread, we think about something that nourishes us and something that is celebratory. The wine is a celebratory drink. And that was partly how I learned about communion, right? There is sure. there is nourishment and there is celebration. And so how do we do that? Sometimes, right, I had somebody ask me, what about milk and cookies? And I was like, actually, that, that like would work, right? Because you get something to eat and something to drink and you get something that and is, it is nourishment nourishing and celebration and but the, the milk is the nourishment right and the, yes right. and it can be almond milk if you're lactose intolerant yep yep um but i think those are beautiful and creative ways of thinking about what it means to to receive communion and the gift that communion is for and the ways that communion can be present in all things yes there is one restriction that I might add, which is that communion should feel like communion to you, mm -hmm. which means that the place that you put the lines might be a little different than someone mm -hmm. else. That doesn't mean you have to force your lines on someone else, but if you try to have communion with unusual elements and it doesn't feel like communion to you, 
that doesn't mean it's not truly communion. You received communion. That's fine. But also you're allowed to go looking for something that works mm-hmm. better for you. That's okay. Yeah. So I enjoy having those connections and creativity. And I know other people, there are some people in our congregation who specifically always do bread and always do a cup of juice. Sure. I like that coffee can be communion. <laughs> Or tea. Or water. Yeah, I, I have to say, I have had flavored water or coffee or tea as communion, and it just doesn't feel right to me. But I also don't drink, so I never have wine on hand. And grape juice goes bad pretty fast, and it's kind of hard to find small containers of grape juice that will that I will actually consume before they go bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of a difficult thing for me. But on the other hand, I do not have celiac, and therefore uh, I do usually have bread on hand, and that part at least works. Mm -hmm. Which takes us back to another odd little thing about communion, which is that the church uh, has, I believe, from pretty much time immemorial, said that if you cannot for some reason receive uh, receive one of the elements as long as you receive the other one, you're fine. Yes. I think Martin Luther in particular, but yeah, that... Christ is fully present in one. And for clarity, this is a great, this is a great comfort and pastoral care and theological care for people who are visiting another community or have dietary restrictions. Sure. For individuals. This should not be an excuse that pastors or congregations use to not accommodate and make communion accessible to people right if you're gonna say oh we don't have to provide juice because they can just not have wine you are not not celebrating communion well that's not hospitality Mm -hmm. that's not yeah open table yeah so just our disclaimer there but this meme that we're going to share is fantastic it's not exactly in line with dnd alignments of (laughs) chaotic versus lawful and good versus evil but it's yeah the subtitle on the meme is a guide to getting kicked out of seminary and i think the first time it was shared with me uh the caption that somebody gave it was how to get fired in one easy step but but the two kind of alignments it deals with are ingredients and structure so thinking about if you're an ingredient purist if it has to be made of particular things Or it could be made of anything. And then if you're a structured purist, if it has to be unleavened and alcoholic, or if it, or if you're a structure radicalist where it can be any carbohydrate and it can be carbonated. So that's not the alignments that I would pick, right? Like I would have different criteria for communion yeah and therefore yeah, I do not fit perfectly on this meme yeah I, I'm a little yeah. yeah but it it is funny because then I'm like yeah it all works and that's not how I think about what should be our elements for communion so like having Mountain Dew and deep dish pizza deep dish pizza is nourishing and Mountain Dew is celebratory <laughs> right but those those particular pieces vodka and lunchables that feels a little weird. That does feel a little weird to me. If, That's in the If it's more than a shot glass of vodka, please have more than one Lunchable. I'm just, like, right? you know, eat real yeah. food. That's, um, vodka yes. and Lunchables <laughs> is structure purist and ingredient radical. Yes. Champagne and plain pasta is one that's ingredient purist and structure radical. Structure radical. Yeah. 
the church has been serving champagne for communion for eons, I, I think. Uh, it's a fairly common thing to use around Easter mm -hmm. uh, as an extra level of celebration. Yep, we did in some The fact that Jesus can be carbonated freaks some people out. Uh, <laughs> I think that's fair. So that's an interesting twist to this table, because in at least that way, the church has been a structure radical for some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although if you're going to use plain pasta, please cook it first. Please. I mean, if you don't... I know people who like uncooked ramen. There, there might be a handful of those people. You can keep a handful of uncooked stuff on hand for them. That's fine. But... Oh, like, you're talking about like you're distributing to in distribution. Group. I was talking about like yes. individual, like virtual communion. <laughs> okay, that makes yes. more sense. Yes, if you're preparing for other people, maybe make sure it's cooked. It's oh, and of course, I know exactly what the Midwestern version of that would be. It would be macaroni salad. <laughs> macaroni salad so for communion. Not a Midwesterner. I'm not a huge fan of macaroni salad, but it appears at every potluck for a reason. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that I've never been asked to use it for communion so far. It is so. kind of messy. Yeah. Well, I suppose there's no actual rule that you can't receive communion with a fork. <laughs> I would use a spoon, but okay. I, it's kind of hard to hang on to. Anyway, it depends on what kind of posture you're using. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Another twist to this is, uh, and I know that this is a thing for Lutheran churches Again, other Christian traditions do this differently, uh, but part of the Lutheran tradition is that communion must be made available to all Christians present, and you don't limit the table to only a handful of people who are there. For example, if there's communion at a wedding, as a pastor, I'm up for having communion at a wedding ceremony, uh, but as it's fundamentally, first and foremost, a worship service, Technically speaking, we would I would insist that we welcome anyone who wants to attend to be able to walk in and attend. Uh, they don't have to be up front, but if you're going to have communion, then you can't turn people away, mm -hmm. is my rule. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to publish it in the paper and say that anyone who wants to wander through is welcome to show up. Uh, but if somebody does wander in off the street because they hear the music playing and they want to attend because they want a worship experience that day, you don't turn them away. Mm -hmm. And it also means that we are not generally in favor of a small friend group that happens to include a pastor getting together once a week and having their own special tiny communion where only some people are invited. Uh, actually, my seminary had a an incident of this happening for a few months at one point, and uh, there was a extended conversation and uh, that was intentionally stopped by the faculty because communion isn't about exclusion. That's not what it does mm -hmm. you don't keep it to just a small group i think we're in a moment where it's important to start thinking about what it means to be church and to be the body of christ and communities of faith differently especially as people right. are so spread out and have communities of faith that are spread throughout throughout the country throughout the world sure. and that needs to be a piece of it right if it's becoming a personal chaplain like that, which is what you're talking about with like a pastor providing communion for their friends, that is a very, that very different weird. thing and can get really weird. 
As opposed to one time I was visiting my grandmother who lived with my uncle in Colorado and uh, we decided one night to have communion because uh, while she did have people who were visiting her to provide communion about once a month, it had been a while. And also we as a family hadn't been able to have communion together as a family uh, for a long time. Now, we also did not wait until certain people left the building and said, okay, now that they're gone, we can have communion. Like, that's not what it was about. Um, it was just we we hadn't all been able to be at the same worship service for a long time. So mm -hmm. I provided communion that night, but it wasn't about exclusion. And if for some reason, another Christian had knocked on the door and said, hi, I'm selling Girl Scout cookies or something. Um, well, if it was Girl Scout cookies, we would have let them in anyway, <laughs> but we, we would have welcomed them into it. So yeah, there, there are various uh, and different situations that happen, but it's not about exclusion mm -hmm. ultimately. Yep. There is also a lovely Swedish tradition that I value highly uh, around the concept of why many churches have a altar rail in the shape of a half circle. Mm. I know that there are a lot of yeah. Christians who take serious issue with having an altar rail at all because it looks like a fence that's meant to keep people out. And I, I understand that and I can see how you'd get there. Uh, but a half-circle altar rail in particular is very precious to me, uh, having grown up in a Swedish-German congregation, uh, because of what it symbolizes. A half-circle altar rail at the front of a church, the idea is that's one half of the communion circle, the people who receive inside the church. Traditionally speaking, for a Swedish church, the other side of that wall, uh, the wall with the altar on it, there's usually a stained glass window or a painting or something. Um, and then on the other side of that is the outside of the church, and that's where the cemetery is. And in a Swedish church, in that cemetery, there will very often be a stone half-circle rail mm. that mirrors the one on the inside of the church out in the cemetery. And that is an illustration that when we receive communion, we are united not only with other Christians who are currently alive around the world receiving communion, but also with those who have gone before us. The great cloud of witnesses. Yes, all of the saints. When we are especially missing those who have gone before us and who have died, uh, that can be a great comfort to us as well. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I really like that. I like the connection to the great cloud of witnesses and in the seminary I went to, we had just a wall of windows. And so it was this beautiful, sure. like, out into the world. We didn't have an altar rail and you can move everything. But it was sure. when we had communion and the behind the altar was, behind the table was the wall of windows. It was a looking out into the world. And, and so thinking about how the body, the table extended out into the world and how the community extended as well. Yeah. So... As we've talked about, we get communion from the Bible. That's where we learn about it. <laughs> Yay, Bible. Yep. And we particularly celebrate it on Monday, Thursday, and understand it to be um, instituted as Jesus' last supper before his death. And also, those, like the particular words and stuff that we use, usually come from 1 Corinthians, which is the passage that we're referring to, one of the passages that that is set as a reading for Monday Thursday. The Monday Thursday readings actually don't change every year. They're the same year after year. And as with, I don't know who actually decided this was best, but 
the makers of the Revised Common Lectionary that we're following decided that John needed to be the, like, reading for the greatest holy days, the greatest festival days. And so we get John for Monday Thursday, for Good Friday, a solid option for Easter. Because as I've said before, John is the highfalutin gospel. John is the highfalutin gospel. And John doesn't actually have the institution of the sacraments. Right. But... What the way that I learned about it in my preaching John class was that John embod the Gospel of John is the embodiment of the sacraments, and so it doesn't have the specifics of it. Like there is a Last Supper in John, but Jesus doesn't say this is my body anywhere in there. But Jesus does, as we will see this coming summer, have a particularly graphic description of how Jesus is the bread of life. And so, yes, also very, very long. mm -hmm. And so Jesus is the vine and Jesus is the living water. And so in those ways, John doesn't necessarily present the sacraments, but does make Jesus into the sacraments. Jesus as the embodiment of the sacraments. So, yeah, John's just a little weird, but you'll notice it, particularly in our reading for today. And if you read John on your own, think about it. Look for the place where Jesus says, takes bread and says, this is my body. Because you're not going to find it. And that's okay. Yeah. Also, the readings for Monday Thursday in the Revised Common Lectionary are the same every year. So we hear them a lot. Yes. So that was quite a deep, deep dive. Our first reading for Monday Thursday is from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 and 11 through 14. God instructs the Israelites to prepare for the first Passover in Egypt, which will mark the beginning of the year for them in the future. So one of the themes that I noticed in this was the idea of meaningful meals. And I was trying to think about other, like, really important meaningful meals in fiction. And maybe, Kay, you have a better example than mine, because mine is not exactly a great example. But the final banquet in the Matched series, it's a young adult dystopia, the final banquet is the banquet that people have when they turn 80. And they've realized as a culture, as a society, that dying at 80 is the perfect time to die because your body has not yet... It's it's very dystopic. But the idea is like, 80 is the perfect age and therefore we'll have a final banquet. And after that final banquet, the person will like conveniently die. And the only rule for the final... Like that you get to choose whatever you want to eat... But nobody from the family who gathers around for the final banquet is allowed to eat what is on the plate, on the tray or the plate of the person who is turning 80. You can guess where this goes. It's actually poisoned so that that person like just drifts off and dies. Yeah. So, so not the same thing as Passover, but it is this like special meal that has particular meaning in that context. I just couldn't think of a different one that wasn't that. I mean, there are lots of, like, celebratory banquets Mm -hmm. in fiction, and I'm particularly thinking of fantasy movies. (laughs) I know a lot of people who were willing to uh, explore vegetarian meal options because of the books from Redwall. The the Redwall series is a series of books about animals that are alive and doing various things, and they're kind of monastic in some ways, Mm -hmm. and apparently there are lots of very lovingly described feasts that all happen to be vegetarian. Uh, vegetarian feasts. And so I I know a bunch of people that got interested in exploring vegetarian meal options because of that. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines of the food itself, right? Like in Passover, 
each thing that you eat has meaning and significance. The bitter herbs, the salt water. Yeah, I'm sure there are fictional examples of that, but they aren't immediately yeah. coming. To well, mind. if any of you have ideas or examples, let us know. Sure. In verse 4, we hear, If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. So from what I understand from Jewish people, extended families often gather to celebrate Passover together, uh, no matter how close they live together. And chosen families do as well. Uh, it's less based on geography than it is on who you consider your family. But I do kind of like this particular instruction because no matter what, it means that everybody has a place to go and mm -hmm. no one should be left out. There's an expectation that you would welcome your closest neighbor to your table if they need that. And there is a genre of fanfic that, oddly enough, doesn't seem to have a name, which is weird for <laughs> fanfic because, boy, we love naming things. But the idea is uh, person A and person B are neighbors. Cue hijinks. <laughs> and it can be a lot of fun, and sometimes they're from different like storylines or universes, and sometimes they're from the same one they just had never met before, and they very often have contrasting personalities and habits, and they very often find each other deeply, deeply weird. But because they're neighbors, they get to know each other. Because they're neighbors, they wind up being able to help each other out. That no matter how different you are, you can still be good neighbors to each other when it matters. Mm -hmm. uh, very often winds up being the end message, and I love that. Nice. Yeah, that's a fun trope. I wish that they had We should it. name yeah. that trope. You should name it. Tell us what you think we should Ooh, name yeah. it. Oh, mm yeah. -hmm. And then Kay will decide, and it shall be <laughs> so. It shall be written. I was particularly drawn to the piece where they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel, so the sides and then the top over the top of the house, so that this is in like verses 7 and 12 and 13, so that then the spirit will pass over those houses and their firstborns won't die. And I was thinking about the ways that, so in Harry Potter, the Death Eaters have created a way so that if you have a dark mark, you can go through this barrier. And I don't know why in the like regular books it didn't come up, but fan fiction has actually done a really great job of someone creating the reverse of that. So a barrier that only lets people who don't have the dark mark come through. Sure. It would be a little bit more complicated for people like Snape or other people who are like navigating that space of being double agents. But I do think that that's a beautiful way of, of putting this, right? Like the marks yeah. on the doors are to stop death from coming through. And so... Right. Heaven. Or like how vampires need to be invited in. Hmm. Didn't know that. That's often a, the case with vampires, uh, depending on which mythology hmm. you're going with. Yeah. Also, when we get to verse 13, and we hear God say, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look! It's like a vaccine! And masks! Not a replacement Yay. for them! <laughs> But a different way of thinking about them. But the vaccine is a Improving. yeah. The vaccine is a marker and a sign that no plague shall destroy you. Masks are markers and signs that no plague shall destroy us. Wear your masks, and people. With their powers combined, we are not gonna die from a pandemic. Wear yeah. your masks. Mask up. Hashtag mask up. In verse 14, we hear, This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. 
So over the years, and very often over the generations, the way that a holiday is celebrated changes somewhat. Very often the central reason for the holiday remains the same, but there become different cultural notes attached to it. Uh, for example, nowadays, Passover is certainly about remembering the escape from Egypt, but also has a note of maintaining Jewish identity to it. Mm. Uh, it's a marker of uh, acknowledging one's Jewish identity and celebrating that. And also, it's kind of hard to celebrate Passover in the full way with not consuming leavened bread for eight days without other people noticing. Mm -hmm. So it, it often involves sharing your Jewish identity with other people. But it's also still about what God has done. And there's an episode of the TV show Sports Night, which was Aaron Sorkin's show that he did before West Wing, that focused on a celebration of Passover, bringing together the Jewish characters uh, and also introducing several of the non-Jewish characters to the story, uh, which was pretty well done. Hmm. Nice. As we continue, our second reading for Monday Thursday is 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. The institution of communion, the Last Supper, which proclaims Christ's death until Christ comes again. So one of the themes for this is embodiment, and we kind of talked about it some, I think, earlier, but the idea of what Paul is talking about in this passage is the ways that the institution of communion is the embodiment of Christ's presence in our lives. And the reason that this is a sacrament is that it is taking physical elements and a promise that God makes, that Jesus makes, and putting them together. And that is, I will be present specifically in this. And so we get this embodiment of Christ's presence, both in the grief of death and in the connection to each other. And I think that is particularly poignant this year as we have been in a pandemic. And yesterday marked one of the first one-year markers for us in Iowa. And we had a big memorial service. And there is this sense of like, the reason we did what we did and the ways that we did what we did were about grief and about connection. Yeah. And as we dive into the verses, in verse 23, we read, For I received from God what I also handed on to you. And this reminded me of Home Alone when they're yeah. like picking up the luggage and stuff and passing it down the rows. And so they get Kevin's suitcase or whatever and they're like give this to Kevin give this to Kevin give this to Kevin and then Kevin's not there and it's like Kevin's not here Kevin's not here Kevin's not here. so it's like the that but like Paul received these words and this understanding of communion and then passes it along and then that person passes it along and passes it along and to my knowledge we've never had to pass back the message that nope Jesus not here truth that is super true literally yeah. good news gospel yep. yay yeah, I looked at verse 23, and I focused on the phrase that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. Emily and I have been talking about what we'll do for the six weeks this summer of the John, I am the bread of life passage, which has involved me thinking about the Great British Bake Off mm -hmm. a lot lately. And now I can't read this phrase in First Corinthians without thinking that it describes uh, so well what an American version of that TV show would be like. Today they made bread, but tonight, betrayal. <laughs> You just know they would. It's true. That's part of what I love about Great British Bake Off is that it is so entirely British. Like, yes. everybody wants to be the best, but they also want everybody else to do their best. And so they want to be the yes. best of the best, not because they betrayed everyone, but because everybody did their best. Yes. And there's still plenty of drama. Mm -hmm. It's just not manufactured mm -hmm. drama, which is a nice yeah. change for Americans. Refreshing. 
In verse 26, we hear, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I have occasionally been asked why this verse says that we're proclaiming Jesus' death. Shouldn't it say that we are proclaiming his resurrection? Like, isn't that what this is about? New life and all? And that part does kind of make sense. But the thing is, is that the resurrection doesn't actually mean much, and we'll get more into this on Easter Sunday, if you're not also saying that Jesus was truly, completely dead. Part of communion is acknowledging that Jesus really fully died. And that part is important. And it turns out that if you don't acknowledge it, that can lead to some really ugly theological twists and turns. And sometimes convincing people of this is surprisingly difficult. <laughs> and it reminds me a bit of the trouble that the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show went to to convince us that John Garrett was completely dead and not coming back. <laughs> I think they killed him at least three times, but by the time they killed him the last time, by golly, th that was the end of that. He was dead. <laughs> so Fascinating. I looked at verse 26 as well, and when I read the part about proclaiming Christ's death until Christ comes. I was struck by Monty Python proclamation of yeah. death, where they're like going through the channels, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. And the one in Holy Grail. Yeah, and the yes. one is like, not dead yet, not dead yet. Yes. Yeah. Our gospel reading for Monday Thursday is the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and verses 31b through 35. Jesus washes his disciples' feet, the duty of a slave, and commands them to love as he has loved them. So one of the obvious themes here is love. And yeah. that actually reminded me of relationship anarchy, which I'm sure we will talk about more later because I think it'll come up more maybe as a deep dive at some other point. But the idea of relationship anarchy is this beautiful idea that all of our relationships matter. So we live in a culture that very much preferences and prioritizes sexual and romantic relationships as like the epitome, right? Marriage is the, the yes. pinnacle of relationship. And many people... And yet we often are so bad mm -hmm. at it. And many people talk about like having married their best friend and that sort of thing. And I remember having a conversation when my best friend got married about, no, she wasn't marrying her best friend. I was her best friend. Yes. Granted, we were also exes, and so that's a whole other thing. Yeah, no, my husband and I are not best friends. We are very good friends. Mm -hmm. but Yeah, but like the idea behind relationship anarchy is valuing the different relationships that we have instead of making some, trying to fit into some hierarchy of which relationship is the most important than the second and third and fourth. But to say, we have different relationships with different people and they look and they feel different. And each of them is yeah. important in their own way. It doesn't have to, there's not this theology of scarcity about the amount of love we can share with people, which I really yeah. like. Yay, relationship anarchy. As we dive into the gospel passage, in verse 1, we start with, Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to God. Which made me wonder, like, what sign Jesus had that the hour was coming? I mean, it could be just, like, the murmurings about trying to kill him got bigger and bigger and bigger, and so he knew it was coming. But I was thinking about David Tennant, who's the 10th Doctor in Doctor Who. The 10th Doctor knows when his time, when his hour comes because he's told that there's this knocking, this particular knocking, and then it happens. Right. And yeah, so that sort of sense of how do we know these things? What sign did Jesus have? Was there a knocking at his door? 
Epistemology as a branch of philosophy just makes me tired. How do we know what we know? (laughs) Also true. And then in verses 4 and 5, we read that Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself, and then poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And this is, as Kay mentioned in the kind of summary, this is the duty of a slave. And there's this beauty in Jesus taking on that submissive like role of caring for other people. And particularly because he ties a towel around himself, it made me think of house elves, right? And there's yeah. one of the things that's really important and that is that makes this a beautiful thing is that Jesus is the one with all of the power. Jesus is the one with the authority. He is the teacher and they are students, right? And he gets into it later. But because he has that role, it is even more important and even more powerful that he takes on this role of slave, this role of serving them and washing their feet. And that is part of the distinction. And I think it's a little bit muddled still in Harry Potter because of the complicated stuff. But that's the distinction between like being forced into something and so thinking about how self-enslavement and brainwashing versus like Dobby chooses to help Harry again and again after that first time, particularly because Harry has also chosen to help him. Right. And so there's a mutuality. There's a freedom because Dobby is free. He is able to do it and even is like technically going against Harry's like at the end of Chamber of Secrets. Harry's like, please don't ever try and save my life again. And Dobby's like, yeah, okay. And then he does, which is beautiful because so much of what has been brainwashed into him has been follow all the rules. Yeah. Yeah. You might call it relationship anarchy. What? In verse 10, we hear, One who has bathed does not need to wash, except for the feet, but is entirely clean. This makes a lot more sense in places and societies and cultures where socks uh, and shoes are not the everyday norm. For example, there is an ongoing cultural note in the new version of Hawaii Five-O, the TV show, which is no longer actually being made, but it's still the new version compared to the one from the <laughs> 70s, that because sandals are the normal footwear uh, in Hawaii and everyone takes them off before entering someone's home, it's common to have a hose just outside your door so that people can rinse their feet off before they walk in. Oh my gosh, I want that. Well, I live in Minnesota where it's snowy for like eight months of the year, so it wouldn't do us a lot of details, good. Details, details. But during the summer, it can be very it's not eight months of the year. It depends. One year it snowed three times in May. I still like to bring that up and explain to my husband that that's his fault. It's not his fault that it snowed. It was his fault that I was there for <laughs> I mean, in Colorado, it in my lifetime, it snowed in every month, including at the end of our 4th of July parade and a giant snowstorm in August. Yes, but, snow in Colorado also melts a lot faster because it's at a higher altitude. Kind of. Before I actually jump into verse 35, I would like to point out that in verse 31, the half of the verse that we're missing is Judas receives his bread, his communion, and then he leaves. Mm-hmm. Also, it's not technically communion, communion, but yes, well, he yes, receives. But the Judas belongings. is fed by mm-hmm. Jesus before he leaves. Mm-hmm. That's a point a lot of people miss. I like to point yes. it out, and that has implications for how we try to restrict communion and whether or not we should say you don't deserve communion. Yeah, but in verse thirty-five, we hear, "By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not that you have the right doctrine. Mm-hmm. Not that you worship correctly." 
or in a certain tradition, but that you love each other as Jesus loved you. How did Jesus love us? Well, Jesus died for us. So uh, it reminds me of the TV miniseries uh, based on a book called North and South. We're talking about the book by Elizabeth Gaskell that is about industrial age England, not the North and South that's about the American Civil War. Completely different miniseries. And in this miniseries, uh, and also in the book, the main character, Margaret Hale, defends John Thornton to a crowd and in the process gets hit in the head by a rock. And she later explains that she did not do this out of romantic love for him, and she actually has to be kind of pointed about that part, but she would have done that for anyone as a Christian duty, out of showing Christian love for another person. And, you know, then the romantic love happens later, but that's okay. Our final reading, we decided this year to include Psalm 22 in this episode. Yes. Probably because Good Friday is really long. And partly because a lot of congregations will do something like a stripping of the altar and have Psalm 22 read or sung or chanted while they strip the altar. And so it fits really well as we move from the gift that is communion into the rest of the triduum, the whole three days, the passion story. It made sense to us to do Psalm 22. So we're doing Psalm 22 for you. Psalm 22 is a despairing psalm about feeling abandoned by God and ends with the author still placing their trust in God. So the theme that I pulled out for this passage was abandonment. And I know it's been a while since I brought up Ember in the Ashes. Almost half an episode. (laughs) But one of the things that is particularly connects for me is the ways that Laia, one of the main characters, multiple times throughout the series, feels so utterly alone. She feels a bit like the the way that Psalm 22 starts resonates for me with Laia. And even then, right, help eventually comes or even just companionship. Someone joins her where she's at in her lament and loneliness and abandonment and That's where the psalm goes, too. The psalm doesn't stay in that abandonment. It moves through it. Yeah. In verse 6, we read, But I am a worm and not human. (laughs) I'm going to assume that this is poetic license and a metaphor and not literal, because I'm guessing that we are not reading about something like uh, in the Dune series, the character Paul actually does turn into a giant worm. I, I'm guessing that's not what we're talking about with the psalmist in this case. I think that probably would have made it into a different part of the Bible somewhere. <laughs> also, for what it's worth, I never actually read that far in the Dune series. I really love the first book, but they get successively weirder after that. So. Gotcha. In verse 9, we read, Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. I love this image of God as midwife. This is not the first or only time that God is midwife in the Bible, but it is a beautiful thing. And Laia is midwife. This is the final book, so warnings now, or the third book. But Laia has been trained as a midwife, and so she actually, like, is the midwife and delivers the baby that would eventually become the emperor in the midst of, like, a war and all of those things. And so uh, shout out to all of the amazing midwives for the incredible work that they do, and Laia and biblically. Shifra and Pua are some of the most awesome biblical characters. Yeah. In verse 24, we read, For God did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. And it turns out that ignoring the problem doesn't actually (laughs) help. Funny how that works. This reminds me of the book Watership Down, 
which is a book about bunnies, but it is also impressively deep, despite being about bunnies. And there is a bit where we meet a rabbit named Strawberry, who lives in a community of rabbits. They are provided with as much food as they want and as they can eat by a local farmer. But the trade-off for that is that the farmer also places traps in their community, and every so often one of their number will be trapped and die and disappear. And the way that this community chooses to deal with that is by not talking about anyone that that happens mm. to afterwards. But they just don't acknowledge that person ever exists. The group of traveling rabbits that the novel follows meet Strawberry and chat with him a couple times. And he seems like a perfectly nice guy. But he also lives in this community and just takes all this as red and default and normal until that happens to his wife. And at that point, he leaves the community with traveling rabbits. Hmm. But ignoring the problem doesn't work. Despising the affliction of the afflicted doesn't work. It, you have to acknowledge what's going on and work on it from mm. there. Yeah, for sure. I also read verse 24 and was looking at it from the second half, more the second half and the context around it, but that God did not hide their face from me, but heard when I cried to God. And that sense of confidence in rescue, even in the midst of nothing should be this way, made me think of the ways that Katniss, in the third Hunger Games book in particular, the speeches that she did give and the times that she did speak out were these moments that, yeah, named the abandonment and named the affliction, but also moved through that to name that there is this other thing. There is this confidence in rescue, in working together. And I was thinking, especially in like when they take District 2 and everybody comes out of the mine and like people are pouring off of the train and it's, yeah, you could kill me and there's no reason that you shouldn't. And also that's what they want. And this is this other thing. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for Good Friday with our special guest, Jessica Davis. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you appreciate what we do or want to get actual transcripts of the podcast episodes, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that, though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pax Vobiscum. Vobiscum.